Amen. If you have your Bibles, will you take them out with me and turn to the book of 1 John? 1 John chapter 2. Here in just a moment, I'll start reading in verse 18. If perhaps you brought a Bible that's electronic, your phone or your iPad or whatnot, uh, I will be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. 1 John chapter 2, starting here in just a moment in verse 18. Now, the question I have for you this morning is, how do you react when the topic of the end of the world comes up? What goes on in your mind when people start talking about the end of the world? Perhaps you might be someone that says, well, I guess the world will end whenever the sun burns out, but that's not going to be for millions of years from now. Perhaps you might be someone who doesn't really think about it at all and says, whatever happens will happen. I'm not too worried about it. Perhaps it gives you an extreme anxiety, as it does some. What's going to happen when we die? What's going to happen after we die? Perhaps you might be uh, extremely interested in the events that might lead up to the end of the world. But there are those who have become obsessed with the end of the world. And even over the course of our lifetimes, and even before our lifetimes, there have been people who have tried to predict when the end of the world was going to happen. This is very interesting. For instance, uh, in the 1840s, there was an American Baptist preacher named William Miller who started to tell people, and it really caught on, that the world was going to end somewhere in between March 21st, 1843, and March 21st, 1844. Of course, that latter date came and went. And then he said, oh, no, 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 wait a second, um, October 22nd, 1844, and of course that day also came and went. You might have heard the name Hal Lindsey. He wrote a book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which is chocked full of ways not to interpret the Bible. But in that book, he predicted that the world would come to an end sometime before December 1988. And of course, I saw my fourth birthday. The world did not end in December 1988, but good for Hal Lindsey, it spawned a complete genre of literature and movies about the rapture. You might have heard the name Harold Camping. This is a little bit more recent. Harold Camping first predicted that the world would end on September 6th, 1944. When September 6th came and went, he pushed it back just a couple weeks. Oh no, it's September 29th. Came and went. No, it's August or uh, October 2nd came and went, and then he said, no, I, I got all the math wrong. The world's actually going to end on May 21st, 2011. Well, the 21st of May came and went, and then he said October 21st, 2011. Eventually, the bluegrass band Nickel Creek came out with a song called the 21st of May, where they're sarcastically making fun of all that. It's actually a pretty good song. In 2012, there was this whole Mayan calendar business. Does anybody remember this? The end of the Mayan calendar was supposed to be at the end of 2012 on December 21st. And somehow, I guess people have thought the Mayans had some secret to the end of the world, but apparently they didn't. And that came and went. And then finally, in 2017, David Mead, a Christian numerologist, where he claims to be an expert in the, the numbers of the Bible and the symbolism of numbers in the Bible. He claimed there was a secret code on the pyramids in Egypt that said the world was going to end on September 23rd, 2017. 
No, wait a second, that secret code was actually for October. Oh, wait a second, March 2018. Wait a second, April 23rd, 2018. No, 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 May through December of 2018. You see how it goes. And eventually this spawned people getting on the internet, posting a picture of themselves and saying something to the effect of, I don't want to brag or anything, but this is like the fifth end of the world I've survived. So some people get obsessed with this stuff. But what does the Bible actually say? Well, there's a few places that you can turn to in Scripture, but just so happens as we come to this text in 1 John today, it starts speaking of the end of all things. So let's, let's read our text. Starting in verse 18, John writes, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many, many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This morning, I want to ask three questions and try to answer them. The three questions are these. Number one, is it the last hour? Is it the last hour right now, today? Number two, who is the Antichrist? And number three, do I need to be worried? Do I need to be worried about all this? Let's take them in succession. Number one, is it the last hour? Now, a reading of the New Testament will actually reveal that the authors thought they were living in the end times. The authors of the New Testament thought they were living in the end times. Let me show you just a sampling, and these will be up on the screen. For instance, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's the Apostle Paul. Or let's take the Apostle Peter. In 1 Peter 4, 7, he says, The end of all things is at hand. The author of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, by the way. We have ample evidence to tell us that this is God's Word. This book should be included in the New Testament. But we do not know for sure who wrote it. But whoever wrote it says in the very first verse, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. These last days... Or finally, James, the brother of Jesus, says in his book, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so the New Testament authors thought they were living 
in the last days. Now, scholars look at this and claim that the apostles' energetic evangelism and their missionary activity was due to the fact that they thought Jesus was coming back very soon, perhaps in their lifetimes. And so, obviously, they were wrong, and that kind of zeal isn't really needed today. Right? But what if they weren't wrong? What if the New Testament authors were not wrong? You see, as you read through the Bible, and you take the scope of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, and you start to see what God has been doing, there are certain ages of creation that we go through. Throughout the years, there have been different ages of creation. And we are currently living in the last age of the earth as we know it. Scripture makes this clear. We are currently, right now, living in the last age of the earth as we know it. This is the time in between Jesus' ascension up into heaven and Jesus' second coming. Right? When Jesus rose from the grave, he ascended up into heaven. And as the disciples were watching him go, there were angels there with them saying, what are you marveling at? He's going to come back in the same way you saw him leave. Right? And the time in between those two events, Jesus' ascension to heaven and his second coming, is the last age of this earth as we know it. And we are living in that time right now. I like to call it the church age. Now, Jesus told us in the Gospels that his coming would be unexpected and soon. He said it would be like a thief in the night. And so we are supposed to always be ready because he's going to come at an hour when we least expect him. He gives us pictures of people who are ready and people who are not. And there will be many who are not ready when Jesus returns. And it will not be a happy time for them. Instead, it will be extraordinarily sorrowful and fearful. But he said, I am coming. In Revelation chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, he says, point blank, I am coming soon. Interesting about that. Interestingly enough, he said that to John the Apostle around the year 90 AD, as best we can peg it. Right? Now, if Jesus says in 90 AD, right, the first century, I am coming soon, and yet he has not come yet, what are we supposed to make of that? What does soon mean? He's going to come at a time when we least expect him. He said he was coming soon. Now, what we can know from this is the disciples in the first century rightly lived every day as if it could be the day when Jesus came back. The disciples in the first century rightly lived every single day as if that could be the day when Jesus came back. And so should we likewise live. You see, our experience has lulled us to sleep on this, has it not? I mean, think about how many years you've been alive, right? Now, in every single one of those years, there's 365 days, or maybe a leap year, 365 days in every one of those years, and that many days you have lived on this earth without Jesus coming back. Every day has reinforced this idea that He's not coming back today. And before we were even alive, 2,000 years of history... Day after day after day has reinforced this idea that today's not going to be the day that Jesus comes back. And yet, if God's Word is truly God's Word, if what we have in this book is accurate, and Jesus says, I am coming at an hour when you least expect it, 
like a thief in the night, so always be ready, we have to admit it could be today. Gosh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be awesome? And yet, not awesome at all at the same time? I mean, at the same time, I think of how amazing it would be if Jesus came back. If I walk out of the parking lot after church today and everybody sees it up in the clouds. I'm running. I'm sprinting. I'm excited. I'm about to fly. Right? The Bible says that. So that's exciting too. But I'm excited. I'm so excited. And yet... I've got some friends who I don't think they're ready at all. I think if Jesus came back today, they would be destined for hell for all eternity. I'm scared for them. That part of me says I don't want it to be today. We need more time. All right? We should live every day, just as the apostles did, as if this could be the day when Jesus comes back. But our experience has lulled us to sleep on this, and it's so hard. It's so hard to get our minds over everything we've experienced telling us it hasn't been any of the days I've been alive. It's not going to be today. But what would it look like if we lived each day in light of that truth? What would it look like? All right, if you knew today was your last day, what would you do? Who would you run out and share the gospel with? What kind of cross-country trip might you make last minute? What would you teach your kids or your grandkids if you knew you only had one more time? What would you do with your money? Can't take it with you. How would we leverage that for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel? We must understand that when that day comes, we're not going to wish that we had spent more time accumulating stuff. We're not going to wish that we had more stuff. We're not going to wish we took more vacations. And we're not going to wish we spent more time talking about the weather and things that won't matter for eternity. We're going to wish we took more risks. We're going to wish that we spent more time doing the things that we're going to echo into eternity. We're not going to wish that we spent more time on ourselves and our pleasures. And so are we living in the last hours? Yes. The answer is yes. But those hours, I can't tell you how long that's going to be. This is the last age of the earth as we know it. When Christ returns, it says God will destroy the earth and make it new into a new earth. Right? But as we know this earth, this is the last age. The age between the time where Jesus ascended and the time where he will come again. And so we are, as the New Testament writers were, living in the last days, the last hours. We can confidently say that about ourselves, just as 2,000 years ago, these guys could write that we were in the last days back then. But the second question is this, who is the Antichrist? Who is the Antichrist? Now, people have speculated on this for centuries, have they not? Right? Was it Adolf Hitler? Was it Joseph Stalin? Was it Alexander the Great? Was it the Beatles? Was it the last Democratic president? Is it the current Republican president? Is it the Pope? Right? People have speculated on this for centuries. Right? But John says in verse 22, look at it with me. In verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies Jesus Christ is anti 
Christ. Does that make sense? Whoever denies Jesus Christ is anti-Christ, okay? Now, this is not John saying there's no powerful evil figure that's going to rise up in the, the very last days right before Jesus' return, okay? Paul does say in 2 Thessalonians 2 that there is this man of lawlessness who will rise up in the very, very last days before Jesus' return and will set himself up against every other object of worship and claim to be God and to want worship. There is some figure like that, okay? But we don't know enough about that figure to know exactly what to expect. Now, John says in verse 18, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming. You might be thinking about this man of lawlessness, but what you really need to be thinking about is the Antichrists that are here right now, today. All right? What we can know is that there are those who are trying to discredit Jesus Christ today. There are those who are trying to draw people away from Jesus Christ today. And John is more concerned with protecting the church in his day than he is with predicting the future. And I am more concerned with protecting God's flock today than I am with predicting the future. And you should be too. Because we have work to do now. We have defenses to put up now. We need to be aware of the enemy now. In verse 26, he says, these people, these antichrists, are trying to deceive us. And in verse 19, it says, they are in the midst of the saints. There are people in the midst of local bodies of believers who are antichrist, who are trying to deceive the saints, who are trying to deceive those who are genuine believers in Jesus Christ. Some of them have gained a following. Some of them have gained large followings. Some of them have sold thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christian books. When Jennifer and I were in college, there was this preacher that rose to prominence extraordinarily fast. He planted a church in a very unchurched place. And when he planted that church, he said, I'm going to preach through the book of Leviticus. And if the church grows, you'll know it's the Lord, right? And the church grew astronomically. And over time, he became extraordinarily popular. And he was a young guy. He related really well to what we would consider millennials, to people my age and younger. And the way that he talked and the way that he didn't take anything for granted and he didn't do everything the way it was always done, it's very, very attractive for someone who had grown up in the traditional church, so to speak. And pretty soon he put out a, a set of really, really well-selling videos that we used in some youth groups and things like that. And then at one point he came to UK's campus and Jennifer and I went to see him on his speaking tour. And during that talk, we, we noticed a few red flags, but we didn't know how deep it was. But we noticed a few red flags going away from Orthodox Christianity, and we talked about it afterward. Well... Then he came out with a book years later that claimed that there is no hell, that everyone goes to heaven no matter who you are and no matter what you do, that it does not matter. God would never do that to anyone. And today, you can look it up, he resembles nothing of, a, of, a, of an evangelical Christian, of a Bible-believing Christian. It's extraordinarily sad, but we watched it happen. It was 
kind of fascinating. Some of them, some of these antichrists are preachers who have what they call churches, what they call churches, full of thousands and thousands of people, yet their gospel is God wants to make you rich and beautiful and healthy all the time. And all you have to do is speak your blessing into existence and it will be yours. Name it and claim it. And then, of course, you have to give enough money to their ministry. Now, some are a little more blatant. Some antichrists are a little more blatant than that. And their message is, self-indulgence is better than anything Jesus has to offer. Right? John says, there are people trying to deceive us, and many times they are even in our midst. And we have to be on the lookout for antichrists. The antichrist... The Antichrist figure, the man of lawlessness figure, yes, there might be someone at the end who rises to power and claims tons of followers and worship for himself right before Jesus returns. But we are not told enough about that figure to know exactly what to expect. But we do know this, that there are those who are trying to discredit Jesus right now. There are those who are trying to steer you away from Christ right now. And we should be more concerned with protecting the believers, protecting the flock now in today's climate and culture than we are with predicting the future. And so final question, do I need to worry? Do I need to worry? And the answer to that is maybe. Maybe. If you are a genuine believer... If you truly have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, the answer to that question is no. No, you do not need to worry. We will get to this later on in our series of 1 John, but John tells us later in chapter 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When my kids get scared about spiritual things, especially my little boy, because my little boy got baptized when he was 7 years old, Right? He became a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. When he gets scared of spiritual things, I have this to tell him. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan can't touch you because you've got God living inside of you. And God is more powerful than anything Satan could ever do. God created Satan. God can snap his fingers and destroy Satan whenever he wants. God has Satan right here. Exactly where he wants him, even though sometimes it doesn't seem like that, he, he does. That's where God's got Satan. We do not have to worry if we are genuine believers. This whole book of 1 John is about how to know whether or not you are a genuine follower of Christ. But let me say this as well. I can only assure you of that. If you are a Christian this morning, if you have put your faith in Jesus, repented of your sins, been baptized into Christ... And Jesus is the thing that you treasure most above everything else. If those things are not true of you, I cannot, as much as I would want to, I cannot assure you that you have nothing to worry about. Because if those things are not true of you, the Bible says you do have something to worry about. I would be worried because I can't stand against Satan. I can't stand against the attacks of all the deceptions out there if it weren't for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. 
Now, one of my absolute favorite things is NBA basketball. I've loved it ever since I was a little kid. And the very first player I ever loved was Larry Bird. Right? Larry Bird was my favorite player from the time I was a little bitty. And you will watch now the retired players talk about Larry Bird, and it's really fascinating. But the, the most interesting one is Kevin McHale, if you remember him. Kevin McHale will talk over and over again about Larry Bird, and he'll tell people that when they got into a close game situation, when it came down to the wire, they weren't worried at all. They weren't scared. Why? Because we had Larry. That's the way he says it. We had Larry. We weren't scared because it comes down to it. He's going to find a way to win that game. Larry Bird was just like that, okay? The same is true for those of us who have the Holy Spirit. I am not worried one bit about what's going to happen in the end. Armageddon, wars and rumors of wars, deception upon deception, leading many people astray. I'm not worried about this because I know who lives inside of me. It's not because I'm strong, it's because He is strong. But the only reason I can say I know that is because I am a follower of Christ. And the things that John explains in the book of 1 John show me, yes, I am a genuine follower of Christ. And not all of us can say that with conviction. Now, look at verse 20. Look at verse 20 in our text. In verse 20 it says, You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And then jump down to verse 27. The anointing that you received from him abides in you. That's how we know it's talking about the Holy Spirit there. You've been anointed, and that anointing abides in you. It remains in you. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that God gives to each person at the time of their baptism when they put their faith in Jesus. In verses 20 through 21, John tells us that the Holy Spirit shows us the truth through God's Word. The Holy Spirit shows us the truth as we read His Word, as we study His Word together, as we preach the Word. The Holy Spirit shows us the truth so that we are not deceived. But not only that, in verse 27, in verse 27, as you see it there, John tells us the Holy Spirit teaches us to discern truth from falsehood. That's one of the benefits of having the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The discernment, the ability to discern truth from falsehood. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't have that ability to discern when someone is deceiving you with something that's very convincing. But with the Holy Spirit, you can have this. Now I want to leave you with this, verse 25. Verse 25, he says, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. This is the promise that he made to us. That no matter what happens at the end of the world, you can know what's going to happen after. You can know what's going to happen after we die, after Jesus comes back. Eternity. Don't you want to know? Don't you want to know where you're going beyond a shadow of a doubt? Because if you don't, I am afraid for you. I am afraid for my friends that I mentioned earlier who I don't think would be ready if Jesus came back today. And if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know without a shadow of a doubt where you're going when you die, I want you to have that peace. I want you to have that confidence in the face of the greatest adversity there is, that you know where you're going to go because God has promised us eternal life. Eternal life.
perfect harmony, perfect existence, no pain, no tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more sin, and completely in the presence of Jesus and God the Father. Don't you want that this morning? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the promises that you have given us. The promise of your Holy Spirit living inside each and every believer. The promise of eternal life for those who have given their lives to Christ. The promise that Satan cannot harm us if the Holy Spirit is protecting us. The promise that you always follow through on your word. God, everything we do, we, we live our lives banking on your promises. I pray that those promises would become real in each and every one of our hearts this morning. I pray that you would drive this truth deep into our hearts. And I pray that if there is anyone here this morning that does not know where they will spend eternity, I pray that the gospel of Jesus would grab hold of their hearts and would help them to understand what the believers have understood for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. That heaven awaits us and that nothing on this earth can touch us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.